You're listening to sermon audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, you can visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. Matthew 5, 1-16, When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven, for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It is no longer good for anything but be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand. And it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Good morning. I am Chad, one of the pastors here. I know you guys are excited. I don't always introduce myself, in case you don't know me. Um, and we are in this text this morning. We've, uh, uh, if you have your Bibles or your apps, you can't turn to that. The text will be on the screen as we go through. But I encourage you to read along uh, as as we as we go through the book of Matthew, chapter five. Typically, we are uh, going to be in books of the Bible as. As Aaron already mentioned, we are going to be in Acts in a couple weeks because it feels like it most naturally flows from, uh, from what we've been over the last months, uh, last sem- uh, semester. I sound like I'm still in college. Um, <laughs> in spring, we were out in, um, in Exodus and God calling his people out of, uh, out of slavery and bondage. And then during the summer, we spent some time in the parables where Christ continued to demonstrate for us what the kingdom of God looks like. Um, and now we have been on the course, this is the fourth week of, right? Is that correct? I'm right, four out of five. Uh, and, um, and this is the week where we've been doing a city on a hill, um, discussing and, and looking at, really honestly, um, the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of light versus the kingdom of darkness. And, and we've been spending that time in, in here just examining what it looks like and what we understand from Scripture as, as true darkness in this world and what God is doing about it. Asking those questions about why is there evil here and what is God doing and why is he waiting and what are we to do? And so some of the prayers that, uh, that I have had for us during this, um, this time that we've gone through this sermon series, I wanted to share uh, and remind you of those. The first I wanted us to, I've been praying that we would see that the kingdom of darkness and light battle around us all the time. Uh, it's constantly, there's true intelligent evil at work in this world battling God and his righteousness. Um, third, I wanted to see that followers of the Most High do not need to be afraid of, those, of that darkness. We don't have to be afraid because we know the one who is in power over them because he is not powerless against evil. Fourth, 
He is not powerless against evil. He might be waiting and patient, but he's not powerless. In fact, he's been at work throughout Scripture we see and throughout history at work to limit evil and even doing that today. And ultimately, God will destroy all evil. And we talked about last week how, um, or two weeks ago, how God uh, did deal the death blow in Christ on the cross against evil. But we still stay. We're in this pattern of, remember the phrase, already but not yet, that his kingdom has uh, inaugurated, but, but we're still here seeing the effects of evil in this world. And so one of my prayers is that we'd understand that God is patient in order to save some. He's patient with darkness in this world that he might save some. Remember how many here today have come to know him because he has been patient. And finally, we have asked the question, or we want to encourage us to know and see from Scripture that God has, in fact, saved us from that darkness to join him in the fight against evil, to be used by him and work through us. And that's what we started to look at last week. If you remember, we talked about truth and how it combats and exposes darkness and how truth in our hearts and our lives begins to change us from the inside and how we take that truth within the church and continue to transform and change us as a body of believers uh, to be more like Christ and how we take that truth into the world to expose darkness and not to partake in it. And we read that from uh, last week in Ephesians. And we're going to be in Matthew this week to continue that path because we're going to talk about how that truth changes us and the way that we live in this world and the works that we do. And the way that we not only just speak truth to darkness, but we actually live our life. We live our light as children of light. Our life as children of light. So if you would pray with me this morning that the Spirit would teach us as we go into the text. Father, thank you so much this morning for your grace in my life and all those who are here with us today. God, it's a true grace that we get the opportunity to, to hear your truth from your word, that we get the privilege to open up scripture and read what you've given to us. God, I pray that your spirit would make evident to us what is true, that you would expose the darkness in our own life, Lord, and transform us to be more like Christ. And we ask all this in his name. Amen. The life of a Christian, those who follow Jesus, should be full of good works, shouldn't it? That's what we expect. Good works in this world. In fact, verse 16 here, if you followed along, Danette got to verse 16. It very specifically talks about the fact that people would see your good works and give glory to your Father. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is a passage. Maybe you're familiar, maybe you're not with verses 8 and 9, that says that you're saved by grace through faith. But verse 10 says you are saved by grace through faith because you're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared ahead of time for us to do. And then finally, in Hebrews 10, 24, it actually tells us that as believers in the church, we should provoke one another on to good works. So while we talk about the fact that God's truth and his light is changing us from the inside, it's evidence from Scripture that God expects us to also change our life on the outside. But what do good works look like? I mean, what distinguishes Christian good works from others? That's a very good question. I mean, atheists who don't believe there's a God can work in a food pantry, can't they? They don't need a religion to tell them not to step on a baby. 
Do you require a religion for every good thing you do? That would be the argument we would hear. Our Western world is washed over by Christendom. What I mean by that is a culture born out of the Bible. And most people believe they don't need religion to know to do good because they've been so exposed to those truths from Scripture. But, but we, we don't only need to understand what good works are that God desires for us. We also need to ask if there is a limit to how we achieve them. Does it matter how we do those good works? Does it matter what the inside is compared to the, what we do on the outside? I, my, my best example I could point to is our culture in the West of politics. That we see how the means are often justified by the ends. I, I uh, introduced my kids to a classic from the turn of the century, The Patriot. Mel Gibson, wonderful movie I enjoy, much more violent than I remembered. <laughs> my my four-year-old told on me, sorry. <laughs> She's a mature four-year-old, no. Right. But I did introduce them to a classic uh, of, of, of a story in which there is this rogue, former uh, French and Indian War veteran, and he goes into the, uh, the Revolutionary War begins, and he begins to just take out the enemy, which are the British. They're always the bad guys, right? Uh, in the Revolutionary War for us, yes. Uh, but in this case, there is a part in the story that goes to a small town that's been helping out the rebels. And this small town <clears throat> has a church, and the British come, and they're looking for who's been helping and supporting them, looking for information about these rebels that have been just harassing them on the street. So the big bad guy, uh, Colonel Tavington is his name. He is also uh, Lucius Malfoy from, uh, from the Harry Potter series. He just has, a, he is the personality of a bad guy, right? He does great at acting. But he is Colonel Tavington in this movie. And he goes into the town, he gets everybody into the church, and he, he, he probes them, scares them to give him information and gets what he needs. And then he tells his captain, he turns and goes outside, lock all the doors, burn the church. Burn the church. And his captain who's actually uh, an American, he lives on American soil, but he's helping the British. He's a loyalist. This bothers him. He said, there's no honor in this. There's no honor in this. Well, Colonel Tavington then convinced him to do it, showed him why he should do it. And before he walks away, this is the quote that I, stood out to me as I watched this movie again. As they begin to burn the church, he said, the honors found in the end, not the means this will be forgotten. Now, all of us intuitively know that's the bad guy. That's evil. He would justify by any means his ends, which are the restoration of the colonies to the crown. And we can debate whether or not that's a good idea. But he said, no matter what it takes, this doesn't matter. God cares more about the means than the ends that we think we're working towards because he cares most about our heart. He cares most about who you are and who you're becoming. And this passage in Matthew 5, verses 1 through 16, it serves as an introduction to what's known as the Sermon on the Mount. It's the beginning of a sermon. I'm going to preach a sermon on an intro to a sermon. But it's an introduction in which Jesus is pointing us to a life of good works that is fruit 
of a radical change of our heart. A heart that is shaped by the light of Christ in you. That that truth is transforming you from the inside, that good works would come from that heart and shine in the face of persecution with the character of Christ and to the glory of the Father. Brothers and sisters, Christ's light shines in the world through your good works. It's opposing the forces of darkness and it's drawing people to the Father. But it's his light in you that shines. Not your hard work, not your grit to try to do what you think is right, but the light of Christ changing you from the inside. And if you're an unbeliever here with us today or you're just searching and exploring Christianity, this is a great week to hear what the heart of Christ is for his people, for their character. Because there's a lot of people in this world who would claim the name of Christ. And one of the probably most terrifying passages of Scripture that they never consider is that Jesus says that in the end, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord. And he will tell them, I never knew you. What's that mean? People would say, Jesus is my Lord. But he says, no. I never knew you because you don't look like me. Let's look at Matthew starting in verse 1 of chapter 5, and see what is it that these good works are shaped by. They're shaped by the light of Christ in you. Verses 1, first off, he does it by writing his law on your heart. Matthew 5, 1 through 2 reads this. When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying... Now, this is simply an introduction to the introduction of the sermon. It's telling what's going on. He's going up on the side of a mountain. He's talking to his disciples. And that's an important context for what he's setting up in this next passage because it's, it's drawing a parallel to Exodus and Moses going up the mountain. How do we know that? Well, we can look at the rest of the Sermon on the Mount and he starts to talk about the law. He starts to talk about the things of the law. And one of the important things about it is he starts to point out that you see all these things in the law you're supposed to do, but I'm telling you that it goes deeper than that into your heart. That you might do things on the outside this way, but I really care about what your heart's doing back here. Okay, like you might say you don't kill somebody, but if you hate people, that problem's already in your heart. You, you might not cheat on your spouse, but if you're already going after in your mind other, other people other than your spouse, that issue's already in your heart. And so he's drawing those conclusions between how they've applied the law. And so we see at the beginning a parallel to Moses already, that Jesus is coming to establish some clarity for the law. He's pointing to issues of the heart. And important to know, he's also talking to the disciples. He is not saying, do better and you'll be my disciple. He's talking to people who are already following him. That these are the changes in your heart I want to make. Christ is speaking, and he's declaring blessings on the fruit that comes from the heart that follows him. And so what is the fruit that that heart follows? If the light of Christ is in you, if you're a disciple who believes and follows, we learned that last week. We saw that to be a children of light is someone who believes in Christ and trusts him. What is that light in you? How does it bear fruit? Well, now he goes into a series of blessings. This is a very common format, okay? 
in verses 3 through 9. It's a common format. It's referred to as the Beatitudes. Maybe you've heard that phrase. Okay, when I was a little kid, I used to hear that, Beatitudes. I didn't ask any, I wasn't, I wasn't a question asker, okay? I just accepted what was told to me in some ways. I ask a lot more now. But then I'm just like, they tell me, I'm like, oh, Beatitudes. I, I like to, I say, don't ask questions. I like to think I could figure it out in my head. That was the problem. So I'm like, well, I guess it's just attitudes you're supposed to have, so I'm going to be those attitudes, right? That's what I'm thinking. What does that mean? Really, it's like a Latin phrase. It's the blessings in the phrase that are coming out of here. I'm going to sum it up super easy. That's really what it's talking about. But it's a common format. We see it in the Old Testament. We see it in ancient writings outside of the Bible. We also see it in the Psalms. Now, often they came with some curses. Blessed if you do this, curse if you do that. In this passage, Jesus just mentions the blessings. And I'm going to read through them for us right now together. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. I'm just going to read through there for verse 9. There's another blessing that's mentioned in verse 10, but we're going to get to that next. R.T. France, who wrote a commentary on the book of Matthew, said he referred to these as the paradoxical values of the kingdom. Jesus has been talking about the kingdom for some time now, and now he's introducing a series of blessings about how you live and how God sees them. He says these are blessed ways to live. And when France calls them paradoxical values, it's because in that culture, in that space, that was just like world-turning to think that these were good ways to live. Like, poor in spirit, mourning, weak, mourning, humble. What is to be humble? To put yourself in the place of a servant? No, I'm a Lord. To, to hunger and thirst for, for righteousness? No, it was just do, what, do whatever felt right. Merciful? To be merciful? Who deserves our mercy? Pure in heart? These things were foolishness. And actually, we read that else in the epistles that what Jesus came to say was foolishness to the, to the Greek, to the Gentile. So I'm not going to be able to go through this exhaustively because you can actually do sermons on each one of these phrases, each one of these blessings. But I do want to point out what Jesus is saying is a blessing, what is important. He says, first, there's poor in spirit. Really, really, that's about what you believe, that you know your spiritual need. Not, not, not that you're, you have low self-esteem, but you, rec- you recognize your spiritual need. Remember when Christ told the Pharisees, I came for the sick, they need a physician, not for those who are well. It's those who already, who goes to the doctor? Do you go to the doctor when you're like, I'm feeling great today, I think I'm going to check myself in? No. So those who recognize their own spiritual poverty and health and their need are the ones that Christ says are blessed. Those who mourn. Those who mourn are not only those who just weep and mourn, but what do we often mourn over? We really honestly mourn over the effects of darkness in this world. If we say that evil is at work and evil brings death, evil brings pain, evil brings suffering, what, what, what do you mourn that's not evil? The cause of it. Even Christ, when he came to his best friend, his good friend, his Lazarus, his death, he saw the effects of darkness on his loved ones and he, he wept. So Jesus says, those who mourn, 
the darkness of this world. You will be comforted. He also says the humble, blessed are the humble, the meek, also is a translation here, the gentle. And I think it's striking if you pay attention to each one of these, what you're promised in that blessing is attached and connected to what the blessing is for, right? The blessed are those who mourn, you're going to be comforted. Well, in this case, blessed are the humble because you're going to inherit the earth. Oh, blessed are the humble because being humble, you're going to get a bunch of land. That's not really what he's saying. In fact, it it seems to be almost that he's referring to people as those who are lowly, those who lay down their life, those that are willing to give up for themselves in order to give for others. They're willing to give up land. They're willing to give up ground rather than to try to win at any cost. That's what Paul talks to when he says in Philippians when he refers to someone to think more highly of others than themselves to have the mind of Christ and his humility, that he laid down his life willingly for others and gave up what was rightfully his. God says, no worry. Those who are humble, you will inherit the earth. It's striking as well that the next passage here says, for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Those who go after righteousness, it's not even like something you desire. He doesn't say those who really want to be righteous, those who want good things. He says you hunger and you thirst for it. You guys ever been really hungry? Most of us, and we have grocery stores down the street. I remember talking to my kids about like what famine was because they had no concept for that. And I was like, they were, very, they were much younger. And I said, can you imagine? I mean, if there was just no food around, they said we'd go to the grocery store. No, <laughs> at the point. But when you really are hungry and thirsty, that's the feeling that Christ invokes when he talks about someone who is not simply desiring, but has a need for righteousness. And then he says, blessed are the merciful, those who are kind to others, even when you hold greater power. That's what Christ did for us, right? He came down from on high as the Son of God to lower himself that he might save lowly humanity. It's also the way he describes himself when he says, for those who are burdened and heavy laden, come to me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart. I will give you rest. Then it says, blessed are the pure in heart. Now, when we think pure in heart, often we might think someone who doesn't deviate in any way. Anybody in here, if I, got, if I asked for a show of hands, if you felt like you were just pure in heart, I'd assume not many hands would go up. You're thinking, no, I know my own heart. But really, the, 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 the thrust of what Christ is saying, and we see this throughout text, when something is purity, it's of a single use. It's devoted to one thing. And when Paul says you're pure in heart, you are singularly devoted to God. That doesn't mean you don't stumble. That doesn't mean you don't fail. But it also gives us context for how Christ, how God could refer to David as someone who's a man after his own heart. A man who would actually take another man's wife, kill him to cover it up, and God still called him a man after his own heart. Because when it was brought to his attention, who did he turn to for forgiveness and restoration? If you read Psalm 51, that's David asking for forgiveness. When he says, cleanse me, Lord. David never worshipped another. And Jesus says, blessed are those who are singularly devoted to God. 
And then he says, blessed are the peacemakers. Peacemakers. No, I'm not. Christ isn't referring to someone who just simply is around trying to make sure everything is cool. Everything's copacetic. We're good. We don't have tension. You stay in your corner. I stay in mine. Peace is, is a, a word that we often lose some value in. It's the term that there's a, a, a blessing or a greeting in, uh, in Judeo-Christian or Jew, Jewish culture called shalom, wholeness, goodness. Everything's right and whole. Shalom would have been what it was like in Eden when everything was restored and right before God. When it was created first and foremost as it should be, God said it was very good. And so when you wish someone shalom, you wish that for them, that God would make everything whole and good and right in their life. And so one's a peacemaker is, so, is, is someone who seeks shalom with God and seeks that shalom between others. You're, you're wanting to draw people, as, as, as the Apostle Paul said, you're an agent of reconciliation. You want to restore shalom between people and their God between God and man and between brothers and sisters. When there's a disagreement, you're like, this is not whole, this is not right, this is not shalom. God said, blessed are those who are peacemakers. Now these values that we read through are ultimately the characteristics of Christ, aren't they? And it's striking that as his disciples, if we have Christ in us, as we follow him, that we begin to develop his same character. I mean, look at the path that it takes. If you're someone who Christ is in, you're poor in spirit, you know your need for God and need for restoration, and Christ is in you. The kingdom of heaven is theirs. Did you notice that? I'm sure you noticed this already. Verses 3 and 9, the verb tense is different. I know every week's not going to be a grammar lesson, but I just want to point that out. The verb tense is different. He actually says the kingdom of God is yours. Not 9, I'm sorry. Verse 10, we'll read that in a minute. Verse 3 and 10 the kingdom of God is yours. Those are present realities. The rest of them are, are future comforts. That yes, right now you mourn, but you will be comforted. Yes, be humble now. You will one day inherit the earth. Hunger and, right, and thirst for righteousness now. You will be ultimately filled. Blessed are the merciful because you're going to be ultimately shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. You will see God. And blessed are those who are peacemakers for they will be called Sons of God. <laughs> if you recall from some of the first, if you've heard the first couple of sermons, we talked about the fact that there were, there's a heavenly host that God works through in this world. And often those angelic beings are referred to as sons of God. Those are in his presence, working with God in, 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 in stewardship of all of his creation. And that here, God says, those who are seeking restoration and shalom, you will be called to that same role. So as we are poor in spirit before God, then we will mourn the darkness that's in this world. And as we mourn the darkness, we're humble because we know our posture before God and what he's done for us. And in our humility, we're going to hunger and thirst for righteousness, that things would be made right, that darkness would be overcome by light in this world. And that ultimately leads to mercy, being merciful to others because we know we have been given so much in Christ that why would we withhold mercy from anyone? And as we follow in obedience and continue to grow, our purity of our heart, our singular devotion to God and His holiness and His worship will only grow. 
and we will continue to try to seek peace between those who are lost and don't know him and between those who are in Christ in this world. It's Christ-like character that is being worked in us, and it's that same Christ-like character that empowers our works. Because if it does not flow out of Christ's character, it is not of Christ. So what is it we can expect as a result of living in this character in this world? Well, we will see that good works are opposed by forces of darkness. Look at 10 and 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven, for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, I have never intentionally or just thought it would naturally to connect persecution with a blessing. That's exactly what Christ does. He says that when you are persecuted because of righteousness, you're blessed. You're blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Remember those two phrases? Because of righteousness and because of me. We're not playing a victim card. If it's not because of righteousness and because of Christ, it's not persecution. Sometimes Sometimes we just have been a jerk and probably deserve some pushback. Sometimes it's just in the world. It's just the way it is. I don't want to set us up to be a constant victim of everything that goes around us and we yell persecution because of it. But real physical persecution and ridicule in the early church did happen and we see ridicule and insult today. Now we don't, we don't often have to suffer physical persecution in the Western world. I want to acknowledge that. But it happens around our world. And it happens today in cultures and countries that oppose Christianity where believers who profess faith are pushed back and harmed or killed for it. In fact, um, I've, I've, I've heard the anecdote that some um, persecuted cultures around the world feel sorry for us because it's so easy to be a Christian here and claim to be Christian. Uh, you don't really know who's in. But in the ancient world, there's often, we see, we see historical evidence of people literally blaming Christians because they were an easy target because they were a hated class. That's what Tacitus, he was a Roman historian, recorded about Nero. Maybe you've heard of Rome burned while Nero played a fiddle. He's up on the roof just playing his, he was a terrible dude. But he needed somebody to blame for Rome burning. We don't know specifically how it happened, but there's some suggestion that he may have been involved to try to expand his his uh, housing arrangements but we do know that a large portion of Rome burned and it says Tacitus writes this he says uh, by all human efforts all the lavish gifts of this emperor and the propitiations of the gods did not banish the sinister belief that the conflagration was a result of an order what that means is he couldn't do anything to make it look like Nero hadn't done the burning so what did he do to get rid of the report Nero fashioned the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. According to an arrest, accordingly an arrest was first made of those who pled guilty, and then upon their information an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of firing the city as of hatred against mankind. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. They were covered with skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses. 
or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as nightly illumination when daylight had expired. They would actually take them and use them as torches down the streets. We've got lights lit up our roadway. They would put bodies and light them aflame. So we want to be careful not to cry persecution in our world, but we've seen it. And we can see persecution and anger and insult in the church. And often, we, in the Western world, strikingly, it comes from inside the, claiming, the, the professing body of believers. Those who would say they are believers attacking one another. Those who say they're a believer insulting one another. Over, over minuscule things or things that they blow up into what they believe to be great things, but the character of Christ is not present. We see here in this passage that that's not uncommon. I mean, even the fact that Christ says, great is your reward in heaven, for that's how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Who was it that persecuted the prophets? That was Israel. So God's elect persecuted the messengers from God. So we shouldn't be surprised if we are living out the righteous character of God among people who claim to be his, that we might also face insult and persecution and ridicule within the church. In fact, I read to you earlier about God saying that, Lord, Lord, but he tells people often, I don't know you because their character does not match him. He does not recognize them because Christ is not in them. And when he spoke to the Pharisees, who were supposedly religious leaders, remember that they were marked by a lack of mercy and compassion. It was fruit of their heart that demonstrated who they really served. And Christ told them, go and learn what this means, that I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Meaning your religiosity and the things you were trying to achieve don't impress me. I desire mercy. I desire character that's from Christ. You'll know them by their fruit. It's, that's actually the phrase. You know that? You'll, you'll know them by their fruit. It doesn't say you'll know them by their doctrine. Let's not worship those things and those ends over the fruit of Christ in us. But we also see persecution come from outside the church. That's not uncommon. In this world, we might be ridiculed. We might be laughed at. You can't answer all of it. You guys aren't probably struggling with that desire to do that. I have to get off any kind of social media so that I don't try to answer people. Out of every, of every sort. Some react, though, actually from true harm within the church. Don't, don't be deceived. There are some who have been truly harmed by a group of people who claim to be Christ. And they lash out from that. They don't need us lashing back. They need to see true Christ, true character in our life. Others may actually truly be hardened in their heart against God like we read about Pharaoh in the story of Exodus. And both in all of those circumstances, it is actually the character of Christ in us that we must respond with. We must have the truth of the light of the gospel in our hearts so much that it transforms us so that our responses aren't based on defending ourselves, justifying ourselves. God doesn't need us to save him. But he has asked us to live in such a way that we glorify him. So we pray, we pray, we pray, and we pray, and we trust that ultimately what he says in verse 11 and 12 is true, that our reward is greater than every affliction. You're blessed when they insult you and they persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice 
because your reward is great in heaven, for that is how they persecuted the prophets before you. You know, that's the same kind of phrase we hear from Paul when he's in 2 Corinthians. When he writes that letter, he says that even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. Even though they're destroying us on the outside, Christ is changing me on the inside day by day. Do you see what he cares about? And then he says in verse 17, for our momentary and light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. Get a chance to read what Paul refers to as a momentary light affliction. Shipwrecked multiple times, stoned and left for dead, beaten and bruised. He'd walk into a new city limping to continue to preach the gospel. Why? Because the light and affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. In spite of the persecution, Christ admonishes his disciples to not shrink back. We don't compromise godly character because of persecution. And, 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 I, and I encourage you to look because in the following verses where he talks about salt and light, Christ is pointing us to how our work in this world is combating darkness and drawing more people to the Father. And he's saying persecution will come. Your character is working in you. People won't respond to it well. But don't shrink back. Don't lose heart. Don't stop doing good work in this world. Why? Because good works draw people to the Father. Look at verse 13. Good works combat the works of darkness. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Salt. Before canning and refrigerating was a created thing, an invention, if you will, it was the primary method of preserving food. It was a valuable resource. It was highly valued. In fact, if you, were, if you recall the phrase, not worth his salt— is to refer to someone not of value, not doing good work. That phrase actually is thought to possibly come from the idea that they paid soldiers with salt. You know our word salary? Our word salary seems to have come from the Latin word salarium, which means salt money. So it was a valuable resource, and the fact that Christ would say, you, disciples of mine, are salt in this earth, on this earth, you are salt of the earth. It was a valuable thing. He's encouraging his disciples, don't shrink from persecution. Remember this, you are the salt of the earth. You bring value here. You're a preservative. Christians fight the depravity of darkness in this world by the good works we live out here. By doing those good works before men, we, we start hospitals. We start mercy ministries. We do things to combat the evil in this world. We're preservative. We bring healing. Salt is a healing wound. Hey, whenever I like remember as a kid, I'd get like a scratch or a scar or something like that, and we'd be, be, be at the beach. You go in the ocean. I'm like, this is great. It's going to heal up all my wounds because salt has that effect. I don't know if it did. I just knew that like that was thing. Right? Maybe you can tell me that's not how it works. But I do know they use salt for healing. It draws out infection. Salt is a healing tool. It brings healing and restoration to those things that are broken. Do I have a lot of pushback if I say that our world around us is broken? No. We see brokenness every day. And Christ is telling us as salt of the earth, 
You bring restoration to the things that are broken. It's a cleansing and purifying mineral. And here's another one. We use it for flavor, but one thing about salt is it doesn't change the flavor of whatever it's put on. It enhances the flavor. So in a similar fashion as salt of this world, we enhance and celebrate those what is good and righteous in our world. Christ says, you are salt in this earth. Don't shrink back. You bring good light, healing, preservation, cleansing to the dark world. Church teaches this when you see James 1.27, where he says that true religion is the care for widows and orphans in their distress. And the early church followed in this teaching. They followed a king who washed feet, so they laid down their feet. They laid down their lives and served others. Acts 2, where we're going to read here in a few weeks, we can see that it says that all things were held in common by the church. That means that no one had need, and they made sure that people were taken care of. In fact, one of the ridicules of the early church is that they disrupted the social and gender order of the time. You know that? From slaves to rich men, men and women of all kind, all in one place, Worshiping one God together, and that's why Paul is reiterating over and over again, you have served one Lord, one God, one Spirit, one Christ who is in all of you, and you are one body. In Acts, they also took the time to make sure they served the Greek widow. They lowered themselves and showed mercy to those who didn't have anything by giving of their own resources. And we actually see historical documentation of, of the church doing this because we see that actually one of the, the habits or one of the, the normal things in, in the Roman culture was infanticide. According to a Discovery News article in 2011, they found that infanticide, the killing of unwanted babies, was common throughout the Roman Empire and other parts of the ancient world. It didn't matter if it was male or female. Societies with extreme poverty would also use infant homicide as a means to conserve resources, reduce economic strain, or improve the quality of life for the family. Okay? They thought it was a good thing to do for culture. But in the book of History of Pediatrics, it records in details how the church created laws to eradicate infanticide and provide options for struggling families. It says that the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD decreed that in each Christian village, a zen- I can't say the word, Xenodokian, or a hostelry for the sick, poor, and vagrant should be established. And some of these became brephotrophia, or asylums for children. The Council of Weissen provided that an abandoned child should find sanctuary in a church. This was confirmed by the councils of Arles and Agde, and mothers who were driven to abandon their newborn offspring through shame or poverty now left them in the marble receptacle at the church door. This privilege was freely granted at the council of room. At each church council, they came together and affirmed, we care for the weak, we care for the vulnerable, and we serve those who can't do for themselves or for us. And they lived it. And while we breathe, we oppose the works of darkness in this world. We're caring for the weak and the vulnerable. We aid the sick. When we gain nothing and, outside our, and when it's outside of our convenience, we still lay down our life for those who can't do for themselves. And lastly, in verses 14 through 16, not only are we pressing and pushing back darkness in this world, 
through our life, but we're also shining hope in the face of opposition. When that opposition comes to us, we're still shining hope. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. What Christ is saying that you need to continue to live out what I'm doing in you, no matter what the opposition is, because you change the world around you for good, and you are a light of hope to the world around you. Don't hide that. Don't shrink back. Don't be so consumed in the world around you that you don't live out of obedience to the changes of character and the light that's in you. We know from the early church that when they lived the way I describe as salt in this earth and they brought changes, that they also saw miraculous growth by people coming to the cross. It's recorded throughout ancient texts. We see it in one communication between someone who's the governor called Pliny. And he wrote to another rural regent, he wrote to another authority above him to see if he could get some advice on what he does with these Christians who are pesky and they're passing their superstition around. He says, I judged all the more necessary to find out what the truth was by torturing two female slaves who were called deaconesses. Can you believe that? Two female slaves were deaconesses. Remember we? Disrupting social order. But I discovered nothing else but depraved, excessive superstition. I therefore postponed the investigation and hastened to consult you, for the matter seemed to me warrant consulting you, especially because of the number involved, the number, the sheer number of people involved coming to Christ. For many persons of every age, every rank, and also of both sexes are and will be endangered. For the contagion of this superstition has spread not only to the cities, but also to the villages and the farms. When the church shines like a light in the world and demonstrates the character of Christ to a watching and dark world, the Father gets the glory. Peter was there on that day. He was there hearing that sermon. He was there listening to Christ, and he didn't quite get it at the time, but he did. He recognized that what Christ was saying was a higher calling than what we see in this world, a character that changes us from the inside, and one that shows itself and glorifies the Father. And we know that he learned and got this because when he wrote the letter, 1 Peter, he said almost exactly the same thing. He was encouraging a people that was under this kind of a torment. They were under this kind of persecution and ridicule. The ones who were in Rome who were being tortured because of what they believed. And he wrote this. He said, who then will harm you if you were devoted to what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Sound familiar? Do not fear them or be intimidated, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Yet, Do this with gentleness and reverence, keeping a clear conscience so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. And note his last words in verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. What is it that Christ is ultimately concerned about? Our hearts. He's ultimately concerned that we suffer for doing good, 
and that we don't pursue our own mean, our own ends, no matter the means. He's concerned that Christ's light would shine in this world through our good works, not through our own effort, not through our own desire to want to change things the way we think they should, but that the light of Christ in us transforming our heart would be what shines in this world. My prayer is that we would understand here from the scripture that that that's exactly what he's calling us to. That when we look at darkness in this world, we don't gear up and think of how we might combat it in our own strength, but we lean into what is true about who Christ is and we trust him to make the changes through us as we're obedient to him. And if you don't know Christ and he's not in you, I'd love to introduce you to him. Because the fact of the matter is God loves this world and he wants to transform it into the image of his son. And he wants to begin with you. He's beginning to change us day by day as we pursue and are obedient to him. Would you let your light shine? Let the light of Christ shine before men so that God would be glorified. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for your kindness. Thank you, Father, for your word in Christ. Thank you, God, that the light is promised to be in your children and that you promise to work in and through us to change the world around us. Lord, it's not in our own strength, but it's yours. God, I pray that we would be like Peter and we would recognize that it's better to, be, to suffer for doing good, if that's your will, than for doing evil. Let's do what's good and let's honor the Son as we glorify the Father in our everyday life and ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.